Welcome to Archaeology in 30, a podcast produced by the Florida Public Archaeology Network. I'm your host, Mike Toman, and this episode will focus on the protection and preservation of archaeological sites. Instead of having two guest interviews, this episode will feature FPAN's Northeast and East Central Regional Director, Sarah Miller. We'll talk to Sarah about her role in FPAN over the past decade, ordinances and laws that protect archaeological sites, a proposed bill in the Florida House and Senate that threatens archaeological resources, and what people can do to help get involved in archaeology and protect Florida's heritage. Uh, joining us now is the uh, FPAN director of our Northeast and East Central office via Skype, all the way from America's, I think it's oldest continuously European occupied, Euro American occupied city from St. Augustine, Florida, Sarah Miller. Thanks for being on, Sarah. Done, and thank you, Mike, so much for having me. And so uh, last year, 2015, FPAN just celebrated its 10-year anniversary, and I believe you've been with the, the organization pretty much that whole time. Is that, is that right? Uh, that is true. In April will be the 10th anniversary of my interview, and I started just a few weeks after that, a few shocked weeks after that. I was so delighted. But yeah, it's been uh, an interesting 10 years, and my learning curve is still straight through the roof. It's been amazing opportunity. And, and you're you're one of the very uh, proactive directors. You've been you've been great. You have all sorts of programs that are always happening uh, in, in the regions that that you manage. And now many of them have now become statewide programs with the the Crypt Workshop, the Cemetery Resources Protection Training. Even I believe didn't they get an award last year? It did. We got a, a statewide preservation award from the Florida Trust for uh, education and media category. And then since since you've been um, the a director for so long, can you 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 probably know about that position better than anybody, or at least as much as anybody else? Can you tell me a little bit about your job, just in general? Yeah, and and thanks for the compliment. I think it's interesting how each director brings to it their own specialization and expertise. So it was interesting as FPAN was starting. I thought there could be a lot of people like me in these same positions and turned out to be a great diversity of people from other areas, other ideas. So I think that's part of kind of what has made FPAN work over time. And none of us uh, do the same thing. None of us have to do the same thing. And for better or worse, I always say the interesting thing about FPAN, none of us have the same job because being a director in Northeast Florida and St. Augustine is entirely different than being the director in Fort Lauderdale of the Southeast region. So it's been a really unique opportunity for all of us just to find our find our niche, see what works, and then just whatever we can get traction with with the public, celebrate that and give the public what they want and also make sure that the conversation comes back to cultural resources. And 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 I think you're, you're totally dead on with that. You know, every every region's different. There's different demographics. There's you know different. Some programs will work in one region and won't work in another. So, and that's maybe the one of the great strengths of of having that whole network. But a lot of your job does center around, of course, promoting the protection of sites, not only to the to the general public but also local local governments. Um, what what are some of the ways that that over the ten years that you've been with this organization that you've been able to do that um you know talking about archaeology advocacy is such a such a fascinating topic to me right now mostly because 
you know, you just never know what that thing was you did five years, 10 years ago, that's going to have an impact that'll come through. Um, so it's, it's curious to me as I'm really trying to develop my advocacy toolkit of all the different things we can do to help stand up for cultural resources, seeing we have a lot of tools, a lot of ones we can speak, a lot of ones we use for writing, a lot of social media. Uh, I think we haven't gone as far as a protest just yet, but um, I think it's been, you know, fascinating to to try out all the different things, you know, and, and I guess that's what I was trying to contextualize is that, you know, we were punting for a while to see what would work. And some of the things we found early on, planners are a great source of uh, interest, a great audience for archaeologists to be talking to, because it's their job through planning to make sure that they are doing, you know, a smart policy, that they are considering a whole suite of resources and cultural resources being one of them. So one of the things we did early in Volusia County was a Planners Underground Conference, where we tried to get groups together, talk about culture, history, but also how a, a site within a city is not isolated, right? Because the city operates um, as a community. So really looking at one specific site is not as meaningful to planners as starting to think about what does a whole city mean as a site? Uh, we've done some work recently with St. Augustine um, as they've been, they have one of the oldest archaeological ordinances for a municipality, which is amazing to have in our backyard that we can kind of look at and examine, see how it might work with other communities. And then New Smyrna, in uh, Volusia County, they have another city ordinance. Very few communities in Florida have city archaeology ordinances, and they have one in New Smyrna. We were trying to think of ways we could help them keep it because it comes under threat from time to time. So we've come up with bumper sticker campaigns. We've come up with um, community workshops, kind of demystifying the process of what is archaeology. Uh, we've done, you know, we we... I see, too, when we're visiting the schools and doing public presentations, that's also a form of getting the word out and engaging with the community. And most of them, a lot of times, don't even know how their city ties in to archaeological protection. Um, Ponce Inlet, the city of Ponce Inlet in Volusia County has a city archaeology ordinance. So these things take uh, a little bit of education for people to know they're there, the mechanics of them, how they work, because not all ordinances are the same. And then those that don't have ordinances, how can they go about and do that? Like in uh, Green Cove Springs, we have a metal detecting ordinance that went into effect a couple of years ago. So they weren't quite able to make the law apply to all city owned property, but they were looking at the mining of artifacts on city land by metal detectorists, and they were able to put that ordinance into effect. Yeah, and, and speaking of ordinances and laws, I think a, a lot of people are sometimes are confused of you know what's okay and what's not okay. Can you can you maybe um, touch on some of the state and federal laws that are currently in place that help to preserve our heritage? Well, it's a very timely conversation because we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the National Historic Preservation Act, and that law 50 years ago was mirrored across all the states, including Florida. So your first line of protection is the NHPA, 
also the Archaeological Resource Protection Act, ARPA, and those could, those uh, help protect federal land. So at the Castillo de San Marcos, if somebody starts digging up over there, or a couple of years ago, uh, uh, someone drove their pickup truck into the fort, they get brought up on ARPA charges. So that's an interesting application of those laws. But as I said, NHPA was mirrored across all the states. And for us in Florida, that's of the Florida statutes. And that's what what protects state law, state lands. So state lands are protected submerged sites that are on bottomlands. So that's rivers, the ocean, um, lakes, navigable waterways, and also state parks, state forests. All that land is protected. Then the next level down are county-owned sites, and we have St. John's County, Volusia County. They have county-wide ordinances that protect archaeological sites. Several counties do also. And then one more step down are the city ordinances. Um, and again, I mentioned a couple. St. Augustine has one, New Smyrna Beach, Ponce Inlet, um, and those are it's 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 not the wording as much as the funding. How do you pay to implement a citywide archaeology ordinance? And that's probably the most difficult question we face when trying to implement new ordinances. And and speaking of state laws, um, many archaeologists are really concerned right now about two uh, proposed bills, HB. 803, which is House bill, and then uh, Senate bill, I believe 1054, in the state of Florida and the impacts they could have on preservation of sites. Uh, what is the issue with these bills? Excellent question. And I feel like I've been I've been answering the phone. I usually answer it for the public archaeology. But this week it's like House bill 803 information center, because there are just a lot of questions. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of concern over this bill. And just to provide listeners with a little history, since the NHPA went into effect 50 years ago and the lands were protected and mirrored through other laws, um, they've also, the cultural resources have come under threat. And every few years, now it's increasing to every year, we face a threat in the form of citizen archaeology permits, also known for a time as isolated finds. The idea that someone from the public can collect an artifact, they're supposed to say what the location is of the artifact, and then they get to keep it. Um, you can right now on public land, if you inadvertently, accidentally find an artifact, best thing to do, leave it in place, take a picture, let a site manager know. If you accidentally pick it up, you can already tell a land manager where the location is. And that's that's free. That takes away from no one's rights. So with the current House bill, which is very confusing because it's written it pertains only to submerged resources, as it's written right now, and it would allow anyone fill out that permit for $100, and they'll be able to collect an artifact from that site. It doesn't say who, where they live. It would come into effect in a few short months, so not really giving us enough time to figure out how it would be implemented. The state just, I feel like just six months ago, we were fighting this through. The state was asked to look at the feasibility of a three-month amnesty window for artifacts so that 
people who had these artifacts could let the land managers know about the site location and then keep what they had. They found the cost of this to the state was going to be over half a million dollars, whether they got to keep the artifact or not. So we know already there's going to be a substantial cost that no one's talking about with House Bill 803. The other issue is the um, person who collects the artifact will then get uh, the, the ownership transfers. It actually transfers from being an object of the state to that individual. They now have the right to go out and sell it in whatever frightening place they like to go post it online. I try not to get depressed and go visit these sites too much, but they will be able to sell it now, not as an illegal artifact, not as something that they can be traced back and penalized with. They'll have something that shows the transfer of ownership. That will be a legal artifact out there in the trade market. And I do not think, I, I cannot figure out how to unlock the analogy for what this could be to people not in the field of archaeology really frightening it's it's a it's a harvesting it's a mining of our state resources and um it, it will be very difficult to track and maintain and why is it that it's bad for people to remove artifacts from from a site like why what does what it what what does that do to a site you know, I've, I've thought about it in two ways. One, you don't know what's isolated. You don't know what's on its own. You know, if something's from a disturbed context. You know, I've been in the field 20 years, and it's still it's difficult sometimes to find out where the fill is, where the fill ended up. If something's dredged from one place and put into another, but you can still find a pattern within the artifact collection, uh, for example, on land, farming land, places where it's been plowed, we have found very meaningful results from looking at previously plow zone, uh, the top levels of the site. There's still a pattern there. There's still information there. So even if it's from a disturbed context, you don't know um, what the rest of that area has to say, and you don't know what's isolated. You know, one Projectile point, which is generally the target of these kind of things, it could have a whole collection of other flakes, of other bits of seeds, of other bits of botanicals that are, you know, in, they're invisible to the eye. So it's just not worth it to us to know where these sites are located. You know, preservation, leaving a site intact, that's good archaeological ethics. We don't need to dig everything up. We don't need to know where everything is right now. We only need to know where they are on unprotected lands so we can protect them. And these are protected lands, so it doesn't quite make sense. The other part of it is if you think of an analogy, and it's an imperfect analogy, but as a site, as a puzzle, it's a puzzle. You don't know the picture. You don't have the box. You just know these things go together, and you will have a, a glimpse, a photo, an image of what the past was like. When people start taking pieces of the puzzle, you you have no idea how many pieces are still left. You're going to have huge gaps in your puzzle if you're able to even get to try and put the pieces back together. And, you know, and now these pieces, these puzzle pieces, they're worth information to us. Soon they're going to be worth at least $100 by this permit, if not um, exponential dollars on the 
what would be legal artifact collection. And is is one of the issues with the fact that people can then, you know, of course, get permission to dig up an artifact and then, you know, have it legitimized by the state and then, you know, then sell it online is, is one of the issues with the selling part of it, the monetary part of it, the fact that that just sort of creates this, uh, you know, this kind of snowball of, of bad, you know, behavior and, and destructiveness? It will really declare open season in Florida, unlike the other 49 states. So it will snowball in that respect. And I think what what we hear a lot on the other side in the news is, well, what if my grandchild's at the boat dock and just pick something up? What if a child's in a park? You know, this is not about accidents. This is not about um, uh, children finding things. These are professionals who have made a living at the artifact, sale of artifact trade. So uh, it's, it is a different snowball than, you know, it's not, not a, it's not child's play. This is a real bona fide avenue of income for many individuals is the illegal trade in artifacts. So if it's made legal, uh, it, it's unknown to me what the repercussions will be from Florida, but I could anticipate um, it, it will only get worse for our preservation. And we'll come back to the second part of the interview with Sarah Miller after a quick episode of Unearthing Florida that highlights the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 with Dr. Judy Bates. Federal laws protecting our cultural resources have been on the books for more than a century. But a 1966 law paved the way for archaeological sites across the country to gain the prestigious status as National Historic Landmarks. I'm Dr. Judy Benz, and this is Unearthing Florida. Part of the National Historic Preservation Act established a process where government agencies, citizens, and like-minded organizations could nominate sites that possess exceptional value or quality in illustrating or interpreting the heritage of the United States. Many sites in Florida have gone through the rigorous evaluation process and have achieved the privilege of being named a National Historic Landmark. These include Native American sites that you can go and visit, like the Fort Walton Indian Mound in Okaloosa County and the Crystal River Mounds in Citrus County. Also, a number of historic period sites have earned this designation, such as the Colonial Mission of San Luis, established in the 1600s in Leon County, and the Free Black 18th Century Fort Mose in St. Johns County. Dr. Judy Bentz is founder of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. Unearthing Florida is produced in partnership with WUWF Public Media. More information at unearthingflorida.org. I've read online that one of the kind of arguments that I've seen is that, you know, collectors are, are, are important and that they've helped find sites. But in order to, you know, just accidentally kind of come across a site um, and then report it, you don't you don't really have to pick anything up to do that, right? Right. That's something that can be done now. And I'm glad you mentioned the collecting community because I don't mean to villainize them. There's lots of sites I have recorded that have been brought to my attention through uh, collectors or people 
um, on other lands that will find something and send me a picture and come forward with information. Let us record the site. And I want to paint that there are some very positive models out there for cooperation. And this is just a little different to me because uh, it is already protected state land. This should not be taking away from anyone's private rights currently. So it's interesting that um, they, they, they've got to have that artifact. You know, there's no equivalent from the environmental side. You don't get to call the land manager, say where you found the manatee pod, and then keep a manatee. Like, that sounds right. insane to us. But right. for some reason, we found this artifact. Here's the location of it. I'm taking it home. My other out there analogy is about, uh, you know, you don't tell the ranger where you found the eagle's nest and take a chicklet home. It's just not allowed. Right. <laughs> These are things that, um, you know, shouldn't belong to others. But I, I, I think with the um, collectors, most archaeological sites are not found by archaeologists. They're found by utility workers. They're found by farmers. They're found by, you know, kids near a stream that find something. Uh, you know, this happens all the time, and those people are to be celebrated. It's really amazing what all we do know because people have come forward with information. Yeah, I mean, I can think of a recent case, uh, the, the, the rediscover, the discovery of the uh, Tristan de Luna 1559 uh, settlement of Pensacola that was recently just found a couple months ago. And the guy who found it was uh, just, you know, he wasn't a professional archaeology, very, very knowledgeable about, you know, artifacts and sites. Uh, and he did the right thing. He he found some artifacts that he thought might indicate early Spanish and he he uh Pass that information off to professional archaeologists, and they were able to actually identify uh, the, the site. Now they're going to be able to work on that uh, for the next, you know, who knows how long, decades probably. Um, the uh, Kennewick man, those were kids by a stream that turned in um, an account of what they saw. You know, that's, that's an incredible find for the last century and one we wouldn't have had if people hadn't come forward. Right. And now and, and on that topic, um, what are some of the ways that people who aren't professional archaeologists can actually get involved um, with not only with the process of archaeology, but how how they can help to protect sites? Like what what can they do? Um, there's a lot out there in the States to foster interest. So if they want to go to a lecture, if they want to volunteer in a lab or on a site, there are those outlets. We're trying also to communicate more with the, with the public. I think we, as archaeologists, have done a really good job talking to archaeologists about site preservation and getting improved marks on talking to legislators. But still talking to the public about preservation is something I need to myself to stay on top a little bit of more. For example, in, in every presentation I do, I can't say that I've always had a slide on preservation, and that's something I'm trying to integrate more into because uh, you're right, within their community, there are sites they can be stored for. They can um, join one of the Florida Anthropological Society chapters and participate that way. There are open annual conferences for them to come and learn and attend and also network and find out, you know, where their interest is. Not everyone wants to be outside in the summer doing shovel probes. There's there's hopefully a place for you 
your community doing the kind of things you're interested in. We need people who can draw artifacts. We need people who like to wash and clean. There's a variety of jobs out there uh, to volunteer with Florida Public Archaeology Network, but with a great many more academic departments, other um, FAS chapters that have those kind of opportunities lined up. Now, are they going to be always on the weekend or at night when you're not working? Maybe not, because a lot of these happen around full-time jobs of other archaeologists. But, you know, people who are willing to travel a little bit and um, have flexibility on time, that's more easily done. And then on the preservation, just being aware, like I'm trying to even figure out for my neighbors, trying to explain to them what else three is, why I've been acting like a crazy woman all week. And it's, it's really difficult to through the scenario and why it's a problem and what they can do about it. And that's our next step. Uh, next week, Wednesday, we're organizing our first brown bag lunch where we are inviting the public. You've heard us going off the rails this week about this. What is it? How does it impact you? What can you do? And I'm really curious to see what the public will say about what their perception is so far, because it kind of seems like a done deal, $100 permit, what's the big deal? But I'm hoping through the conversations of their favorite places, the places they're already going, that they'll realize how this will impact them as well. And, and where can people go to get more information about the um, negative impacts that these two bills in particular uh, will have? Uh, well, we had tried various points of blogs on social media, et cetera. Now we're trying to collate it all on one page within FPAN to make it easier to find. So if you go to fpan.us and you look up at the top, there's an FAQ tab for frequently asked questions. And we've moved it up to the number one frequently asked questions is about citizen archaeology permits and isolated finds, this issue particularly. So if they click there, there's a link for more information, and the whole page has got, uh, it's got the language of the bills. It's got past news articles and blogs. Um, one thing we had on there is last year they had the, well, two years ago, the Operation Bust that showed how they brought up 13 individuals on over 400 charges. That, that makes my neighbor's jaw drop. They just don't realize the criminal activity that has gone on around these sites for so long. Now, I'm not going to tell you any artifact you put in your hand is worth $100,000. However, the asking price on some of the artifacts they were looking at, you know, astronomical values. You know, whether they were ever going to get those or not, I don't know, but they were also looked at for tax evasion. So I, I think... Um, they're good resources, as are uh, just looking at, you know, we're good at the legal message and we're good at the ethical message. But I think to hear the personal accounts of how uh, people in their own places will be affected, I think that's thing legislatures are really interested to hear right now. If you love a river or a spring or a lake, or uh, even the maritime ocean, how it may be impacted by uh, people going in and looking for objects, dislodging them, uh, interrupting the environment. And it, it's a big mental shift 
to go into a state land, state public place, and know we own this. When I go to Blue Spring, it's one of the most beautiful places in Florida. I like to pretend I live there. <laughs> in a way, I do because I'm a Florida resident and it belongs to me because I have my state park pass. I'm a Florida resident. It's for all of us to feel that ownership of, oh, this is mine. This is my place. So I think it's a big shift in reasoning to start looking at it as something you can mine or keep a part of it for yourself. That's not what we've agreed upon. Yeah, and and thanks so much for your for your time and for your thoughts on this. And I, I really hope that uh, you know this this bill doesn't go through. And I hope that uh, you know we we continue on with with the amount of passion that you have. And and I hope others uh, in the communities that live around these sources will will have that same passion and uh, try to find a way to to make this bill go away. But but thanks again so so much for all your time. And that is all the time we have for this episode. For more information on Florida House Bill 803 and Senate Bill 1054, visit www.fpan.us and click on the Fact tab. Please help us protect Florida's heritage and take care.